What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. Film spotting is a free service, Josh, so I think we've mostly avoided selling, buying, or processing anything. I don't know. Aloha is a lot to process. <laughs> True enough. John Cusack there as Lloyd Dobler in writer-director Cameron Crowe's debut film, Say Anything. This week, we'll talk Say Anything, along with Crowe's latest, Aloha, which stars Bradley Cooper, Emma Stone, and Rachel McAdams. We'll also revisit our top five films of 1989 and more. Many tips on this show. Movie tips. Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you once again by our great partners over at MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. A couple of the titles they have available this week, Loving Couples. You know Ingmar Bergman. If you're listening to Film Spotting, surely you know Ingmar Bergman. But do you know Mai Zetterling, a Swedish actress? Zetterling leapt to directing with this rebellious, controversial 1964 debut, an examination of sex so frank that it got her booted from Cannes. It stars Bergman muse Harriet Anderson and was shot by the legendary collaborator with Bergman, Sven Nykvist. Also available over at MUBI, Eccentricities of a Blonde-Haired Girl, a small masterpiece from one of cinema's great masters, this exquisite short feature by Manuel de Oliveira, who died this April at the age of 106 honors the sublime ardor and mystery of love. And finally, Julia, Eric Zonka, where in heaven's name are you? After the startling success of your debut, The Dream Life of Angels, and an immediate follow-up, we had to wait eight years until Zonka made this, a searing, deeply personal drama featuring a fearless, she's always fearless, Tilda Swinton. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it, so there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. They have a great mobile app as well so you can download films and watch them offline our listeners can try MUBI free for a month just go to MUBI.com slash film spotting to redeem now that's MUBI.com slash film spotting You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. Later in the show, we'll talk hoverboards and the ethics of time travel with Marty McFly, assuming he makes the trip to 2015 as promised as I've been told in 1989's Back to the Future 2. Still a sequel I haven't seen. You never made it to Back to the Future 2? Despite Back to the Future being one of my all-time favorite movies. Pitch Perfect 2, you're right there in line. there. <laughs> Priorities, Josh. If Marty doesn't show, we'll just have to revisit our top five films of 89, a list we shared last July. That's coming up in a bit. But first, Hawaii, the setting for Cameron Crowe's Aloha, is about 2,600 miles away from Seattle, which is the setting of his directorial debut, Say Anything. Is that also about how far apart the two films are in terms of quality? Well, I remember the good times. There were no good times! You cost us our prime new partner, a new space command center, all gone because cool guy here, Mr. Sexy Pants, Brian Gilchrist, blew the mission. You were going to wear this like Flava Flav wears a clock. You can't let one small meltdown destroy me. 
chance. Who doesn't want a second chance? Your old boss wants you back. It's Hawaii, our old stomping ground. Aloha. Gilcrest, you're back in the game. I want to introduce you to your Air Force liaison. She's a fast burner. A double espresso? Good morning, sir. I'm so jacked for today. Make that a triple. The old ex-girlfriend. Pause for the memories. I don't even remember why we broke up. Because you're a workaholic who creates work to avoid real work. Well, I'm still working on that. You wrecked everything, and I put my life back together in spite of you. We are going back in time this week, so let's start with a quick jump back just five months to January and our two-part 2015 movie preview. The top five movies we were most anticipating, followed by the top five questions about movies we were most eager to have answered. From your list, Josh, only one has been exposed so far. Will Sundance 2015 give us another boyhood? I wasn't there. You were, but it doesn't seem like there's been a movie that really just galvanized critics and audiences Not a consensus behind it, pick, yeah, yeah. the way Richard Linklater's movie did. And one more is going to be answered very soon. How will Colin Trevorrow handle the big budget and massive scale of Jurassic World? We will find out. From my list, we're still waiting to see whether Atonement director Joe Wright can make me care about Pan, or whether there can be two good Bond films in a row, and for what it's worth, having seen the Spectre trailer... I'm all in. Or whether Don Cheadle can write and direct a Miles Davis biopic that's as creative and bold as the man himself. Alas, there's still no release date for Miles Ahead, so I'm not holding my breath. Two of my queries we've put to rest. Can Channing Tatum play a quote-unquote character? No, he can't. (laughs) Or at least he didn't pull it off in Jupiter Ascending, although I think we'd agree he's hardly the biggest problem with that movie. And after last weekend, my number one cinematic curiosity of the year can Cameron Crowe be relevant again, has been settled. Emphatically. I said of the then-untitled Cameron Crowe project, he may have another masterpiece in him, but I'd be happy to just see him make another good movie. Josh, let's get this out of the way. Are you going to put on your Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights contrarian shoes and challenge the conventional wisdom on Crow's latest Aloha? Or do we agree that it's, um, let me check my notes here. It seems all I have is one word scribbled down, all caps, yikes. Yikes is about right. Okay. Although I think I would not have gotten to that point of scribbling it down because I was still befuddled. Mm. It took me a while to get out of that haze of wondering what was going on here to get to Yikes. Got it. It's common, of course, for critics to visit or revisit a director's most revered movie to get some perspective on their latest effort. We're flipping that on its head for this Sacred Cow review of Say Anything, Crow's directing debut about loser Lloyd Dobler and his love for the brainy Diane Court that established, or at least solidified, John Cusack's status as an 80s icon and forever altered our relationship to Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. Josh, what did Aloha's awfulness reveal to you about Say Anything's awesomeness, or might this cow really be a false idol? No, Say Anything held up quite well. I mean, you know, it's dated in some of the ways you might expect being of its particular time. And I think maybe high school movies date uh, more than others, perhaps. Uh, But I thought it held up quite well. And it was interesting watching them back to back. I watched Say Anything Sunday night, went to Aloha Monday night, and the gap is so wide. Hmm. I watched them in the opposite order. I okay. did go with the new one first and then went back. So you, you had a, a palate cleanser. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would have been a better way to do it, maybe. You know, Say Anything was just this convergence. You, you mentioned Cusack, and I think he is almost as responsible for how that movie works as Crow. But at the same time, you know, Cusack, you can see him getting a firm grip on this 
persona, this identity, uh, this Cusack guy that maybe that's the best he ever nailed that Cusack guy is in Say Anything. It's just so perfect. He's he's this mixture. He's like the class clown slash valedictorian. He's a smart guy, but he's in his own way. And he's uh, he's just following his own beat. And uh, Cusack nails it so well in sync with Crow, really getting a grasp on his voice, what it's going to be. And it's this voice of optimism that has coursed through all of his movies, I think, and is very distinct for a high school movie to be that optimistic. Even though Lloyd Dobler has no idea what he's going to do with his life, Mm -hmm. he's happy about that. You know, it's not a miserable response. So those two things came together. Now, watching Aloha and especially keeping in mind this cast that he has put together, which is just chock full of people who are as charming, and that's just sort of a catch-all word, but of full of potential, let's say, as a John Cusack. I am a Bradley Cooper fan, I think maybe a little bit more than you, mm-hmm. but add to that Rachel McAdams and Emma Stone, and even in supporting parts. Bill Murray. I mean, how can... Not one of these people has a decent scene, I think, except perhaps John Krasinski, who gets maybe four scenes. Mm -hmm. I think his is the one that works with the sort of silent, manly communication between him and Cooper. All these other people fall flat. So the only thing, and they're working hard, too. Let's let's say that they're they're working their charms. They're doing their best. So the only thing I can say is what what is the difference here is that Crow's and this is this is painful to say as someone who's loved especially his best movies. Crow's voice is gone. I mean, it's not here. You can see a faint echo of it. You can hear the inflections attempted. Um, but in a way, Aloha feels like a movie where it was built around some of those dialogue nuggets that have always stood out in his films. It's almost as if that's what came first and he tried to construct a story around Mm. it uh, and tried to find the right stars to say the words because the words are there, but they're not working. And it's really kind of a depressing experience to go through. And as someone who did, contrarian, uh, defend We Bought a Zoo, I don't think it's his best, and I probably overpraise it at the time, but I still think it's a decent film. Uh, looking back at that, and then something like Elizabeth Town, which pretty much everyone agrees, including me, does not work, and Vanilla Sky, which I did like, but what felt very much like a non-Crow exercise, something he was trying to be different. I don't know that we've heard from Cameron Crow, really heard from him since Almost Famous. Mm. Well, I'm with you on that. I'm with you, obviously, on Aloha and Say Anything holding up. I think it absolutely is still a great film. I maybe watched it in college, but I don't know that for sure. It's entirely possible that this was the first time I had seen the movie in its entirety, not just individual scenes here and there, since 1989. And fortunately, this rewatch did not destroy my early teenage years. And it's easy to pick apart Aloha for a lot of different things. But getting to that question about watching them the way I did anyway, what did seeing Say Anything after Aloha kind of reveal to me about maybe the problems with Aloha or what Crow has been at one point in his career anyway, or for maybe about a decade very good at, was the way he handled all of these different storylines and supporting characters. Because Aloha's plot, 
I don't even know where to begin in describing what's going on. There are too many characters, too many subplots, too many everything. And then you watch Say Anything and you realize that there are also a fair number of subplots and supporting characters. No, it's not anywhere near as bloated as Aloha. I don't know many films that are, but you've got Lily Taylor as his friend Corey and her subplot with Joe, her former boyfriend and his betrayal and how she tried to kill herself and their friend Amy Brooks plays DC. Joan Cusack doesn't get a lot to do, but she's still nice to see on screen playing appropriately his sister and her son, of course, factors into the movie as Lloyd's nephew, John Mahoney as Diane's father and that whole storyline with his legal issues. All of those characters and subplots do what they should do, which is support the main characters, the main plot, and the main themes of the movie. You could remove, I think, all of them from Say Anything, and the story, the basic story, wouldn't fail. You just have a less rich, less rewarding movie. And Aloha, in contrast, is all mechanics. Without A, B, C, and D, and E happening, you don't get to F, G, H, and so on. And if that's the whole point, if that's where Crow is trying to go, then so be it if it takes all of those machinations to get there. It's sort of shocking that someone whose instincts were once so sound, as you said, and I think we're going to get to some examples of that, that there wasn't a point in the writing of this movie and the making of this movie where he didn't discover that any story requiring this many moving parts and explanations is probably not a story that's really worth telling. I don't know how he didn't discover that. Yeah, I, I, I'm shocked that Aloha got this far along the major studio process, to be honest with you, because it's, it's just downright confusing. Besides the fact we may not be as invested in these characters, just in terms of plot, it's surely confusing. Say Anything, and I think Crow's other really good films are very generous in the way that you talked about, in that they do take time for supporting characters and really flesh them out. And what that does is it builds the emotional world of the film. In Aloha, it assumes, I think, that that world's been built. Uh, There's a very interesting turn early on. Bradley Cooper essentially is playing this former... Air Force. I never quite got an idea of what he does, but he was a military person. He's now a contractor and he's returning to Hawaii where he was once stationed to work for this, for Bill Murray's billionaire doing something else I never quite understood. But at any rate, he has a liaison played by Emma Stone because they're working in concert with the military. So these two are supposed to be the central relationship, although it's not clear for quite a while, but you get that sense. And in terms of the movie assuming so much on the part of the audience that we're with the movie where Crow is, at least in his screenwriting process, they have that very expected argument between these two that are supposed to fight because they really like each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a standard trope in, in romantic comedies and dramas. It happens so soon in this movie. I think it might be their second extended scene together. And we have nowhere, but these two hardly even know each other. We got a montage, I think, though, Josh. Didn't that solve everything? And we're already jumping to this scene of them angrily fighting with each other, which is, and so the movie seems to, there's almost like there's a first act that's completely missing Mm -hmm. from Aloha. And to go back to say anything, I think it is the care that is built in those supporting characters, such as Lily Taylor. The fact that we see her early on and we understand the bond she has with Lloyd Dobler, that is why there's payoff when she pops up later and the movie takes a little diversion to her story. 
we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. We want to follow that story because we've built our own relationship with her. So you're right. Those are things that, uh, as a filmmaker, he was very careful to build up and is generous with screen time devoted to it. And it's just missing this time Mm -hmm. around. Cameron Crowe's movies, obviously, I don't think a lot of people devote much time to talking about them visually. Maybe he's a little bit like Linklater in that way, where we go character first. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. But another generous filmmaker. That's true. What did you think, though, of the look of Aloha? Did it strike you in any way, one way or the other? Well, it struck me in a very early scene on the tarmac as insanely frantic. Yeah, the handheld camera work there yes, made and no sense at all. It, well, you know, the the direction, I think, was supposed to tell us that a Emma Stone's character is frantic and uptight, as if her high-strung performance wasn't telling that mm-hmm. enough. We get actual zooms from, you know, a medium shot into her face to accentuate that. And then she and the Rachel McAdams character, who Bradley Cooper's character previously had a relationship with, the three of them are on screen and we're circling around them in yeah. that handheld shot. And he's kind shot. of stuck between them and the camera just keeps moving. And it seems, if anything, like it might be just overemphasizing the point that he's stuck between them. Very much overemphasizing. Yeah, it really doesn't add anything at all. And in terms of just pure aesthetic, how it looks, too... I'm willing to assume that the theater I watched it in maybe just had dim bulbs and it didn't look very good, but it doesn't really take advantage of the landscape, the beautiful landscape of Hawaii. And there are times where it seems overly gritty for a movie that isn't trying to be gritty at all. And that really surprised me because I looked up the cinematographer, Eric Gautier, who's done some brilliant work with Olivier Asayas. He shot Summer Hours, which is a gorgeous movie. He shot Into the Wild, a movie we both love. He also shot The Motorcycle Diaries, but there was something that just seemed completely out of sync here working with crow and then you watch say anything again more dialogue than camera driven but every choice crow makes in terms of where to put the camera is sound and the editing rhythms are perfect i was describing to my wife the difference between say anything i was trying to articulate how it's different than the mess aloha is and the best way i could describe it was there are moments in aloha where two people are having a conversation there are a lot of those in this movie as there are in all of Cameron Crowe's films, and it will cut to reaction shots or response lines, and it seems like they were plucked from moments in the conversation 30 seconds later or 30 seconds before. It's that disjointed where they don't seem like they're in the same conversation at all. And Say Anything is just so perfectly rhythmic. I'm thinking about moments like at the dinner table, the famous, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, Mm -hmm. process anything that we led with at the beginning of the show here. There's a moment... Before that, just before that, where he's at the end of the table, the father's at the other end of the table, and he finally presses Lloyd and says, yes, Lloyd, tell us about your future. What are you going to do with yourself? And the camera perfectly cuts away just for a moment to Ione Sky, to Diane. And you see that look on her face like, oh, no. Oh, no. What's he going to say? And <laughs> yeah. There's no way what he's going to say is going to please my father or these people. And I could give you 25 examples like that in this movie. Those little moments that make this film what it is. There's another one where Diane, when he first calls her and asks her out and she says, I'll go. And she says it sort of approvingly. And she's happy with the decision she's made. And then as he keeps pressing a little bit and keeps talking, she goes, I'll go. 
And I love the fact that that second time, she's almost now terrified at what she's done. There's a little bit of reluctance that comes in. And I noticed that throughout the movie, there are multiple cases where Crow was willing to take certain moments that could have been one note, could have been more crowd-pleasing, and made them more complex. It's not going to be this triumphant moment where our hero gets the girl. She's now questioning, oh my, what did I just do? And there's the big moment where she finally comes back to him, and he says to her, do you need someone or do you need me? Right. And then he says, you know what? I don't even care. Yeah. <laughs> and granted, when they embrace, she answers it and says, I need you. But you really get the sense that that line didn't need to be in there. He really doesn't care. He's just so glad to have her back. But that does soften that. That does take away from that moment and make it a little more bittersweet that we don't know for sure in that moment, whether or not she just needs someone to lean on because of all the things going on in her life. And he's this one constant. So there are a lot of things going on there. And right off the top are the performances. They're delivering those lines in a way that are true and heartfelt and spontaneous and feel spontaneous at the right moment. And I think what you're talking about in Aloha is even when we when he tries to capture those moments, they're they're out of sync mm-hmm. somehow. Now, I, I don't know that that is poor editing or if it's valiant editing in an attempt to salvage, to salvage uh, what just was never there. Because I also didn't really get a sense for how hard these actors are working that they had a f- real idea of who their characters were. Uh, and you definitely have that in Say Anything. And in terms of, you know, the visual style, I don't think I would hold Say Anything up as an exemplar of any sort of distinct cinematography. But Laszlo Kovacs was the cinematographer there. Mm-hmm. And what needs to be done is done right. And even something like that iconic holding the boombox up over his head I didn't remember this, but watching it again, it's a very slow zoom in Mm -hmm. following the music and just enough to give it that extra punch that maybe it wouldn't have had if it was just a distant shot um, or stayed far away or even started close in. It's just this, uh, this slow zoom in, the opposite of the frantic zoom we get in on Emma Stone in Aloha and this confidence maybe say anything for a directorial debut has an extreme confidence I think in its material and the irony is that here's a director who has made a handful of acclaimed films since but on Aloha it does not feel like a confident piece of material it does try something interesting visually and it's a thread that had maybe some potential but is so random for so long and then gets completely Completely dropped. There seems to be this obsession with Hawaiian mythology mm-hmm. on the part of one character in particular, Rachel McAdams' son, who's a little bit this. You know, you know, Crow also has this fault of the movie actor kid, the Jerry Maguire character, the Jerry Maguire character, and you know, even precocious. say anything has it a little bit in Lloyd's nephew, uh, but it doesn't really work at all here. But this kid is obsessed with Hawaiian mythology, and we get elements of Emma Stone echoing that too because she's what one quarter Hawaiian which is you know a ridiculous Again, thing we could get into too much. Uh, it right. doesn't add anything to the story but she does have this reverence for the mythology as well and they're driving late one night and we get these marchers who are supposed to be we get some snippet of the lore but the point they is they might be apparitions or yeah it, it's tapping into that mythology street, again right. and it's adding this visual element because it's foggy they're kind of spooky they're figures 
And I thought, okay, maybe he's going to try to work some magical realism in here. That would be interesting. Not something he's done before. A little bit of a departure. Completely dropped by the time we get into the third act. Mm-hmm. It, it has no... The it, magic realism. It, the magic realism and even the, the references to folklore and mythology. Mm-hmm. It, even though it's something that could be carried through in the way the story ends up. I mean, there could have been ways to tie in. There are fantastical things that end up happening in the last act of this film, but because it isn't even brought into the earlier magical realist touches, it's just ridiculous. What is that? I'm tempted to say menehune, like Hawaiian leprechauns. (laughs) Or chipmunks, something. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing mostly 1989's Say Anything, writer-director Cameron Crowe's debut, his great film that it turns out is still pretty great, watching it 26 years later, in contrast to his new film, Aloha. And that's interesting that you made the connection between, like, Jonathan Lipnicki and the kid in this movie to the kid Jason is the character's name, I believe, in Say Anything. Maybe it's just because he isn't quite as precocious and doesn't have as many lines. I love that dynamic. There's something that's so heartwarming about it and yet not gratuitously so when Lloyd leaves and they have to say goodbye. Crow doesn't milk that at all, and yet it hits just the right note. Again, his instincts yeah. in terms of emotion just seem to be so right on. It's at revealing every point. of the Lloyd Dobler character, that's too, it. to give him that sort of relationship and, and make it a meaningful one that mm-hmm. he does care for this nephew. So, yeah, and, and the kid's not nearly as annoying as many no. of his other. And I was going to joke earlier in terms of other tropes that I was going to perform this whole review behind the steering wheel of my car singing as loud as I could, because that's another thing (laughs) Crow likes to do, right? When people are happy, you see it in Jerry Maguire. I think he sings Free Fallen, John Mahoney here, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, Mm -hmm. when he's going to give his daughter the good news. I did want to go back to what you said about the iconic scene, the in your eyes scene, only because... All these things we're talking about, the world building, the supporting characters, the richness of that, the emotional beats and how everything fits together. That's how you get those moments. It isn't that that moment on its own is so right. groundbreaking or amazing it's in some way. It's very straightforward. Very straightforward. And it's not followed up at all. No. I had completely forgotten that. Yeah. We get it and it just cuts to the, That's true. the next we sequence. We don't cut back to Diane nope. reacting to it. We She's don't even know if she really heard it. it. That's it. <laughs> She's tossing and turning in her bed. We're not completely sure why. We can hear it. It sounds like it's coming from her window. And of course it is. But she never goes to investigate that I can recall. And there's no sort of closure to that scene. And there doesn't need to be. But that wouldn't be this moment that we all talk about. And we all think about every time that song comes on the radio. If it wasn't for the fact that everything else in that movie was working the way it was. Another thing I did tap into a little bit this time that I didn't back in 1989. As obvious as it is for a movie that's called Say Anything. And it's really about these moments of truth and being able to be honest with someone you love. And it's referenced directly twice in conversations between Diane and her father. I did notice that there are fun little ways that Crow plays with these notions of expressing yourself and kind of personal integrity and honesty throughout the film. And there are a couple of them where it happens in terms of reversals, right? Where Diane comes home after their first night together in the back of his car, the Malibu, and she's telling her dad her whole thought process and how she decided she's not going to sleep with him. And he looks so relieved, Mm -hmm. like any father probably would be. And then she says, but I attacked him anyway. And that's mirrored later when Lloyd visits 
Mr. Court and says, you know, I've decided I'm not going to go with her to England. I'm going to stay out of her life. And you can tell he's nodding and he's relieved that this is happening. And then he says, but then I reconsidered and he's crushed again. And even going to things like the letter he wrote to Diane after that night together, which is mirrored by the letter that she writes to her father when she's not sure she can talk to him. And the fact that Lloyd points out, well, a different version of it existed where she had a more hopeful ending and she expressed her love for him. But he got the version that didn't say that, you know, and just the fact that there could be two different versions of that and this idea that those words that you choose, which one did she choose? Which letter did she pick to give him? Those choices of words matter, just as it really matters to Diane when her father looks her in the eye and lies to her. That's really the betrayal, right? It's not so much that he does something illegal. You get a sense that she'd be with her father and on his side if only he was honest with her, if he had actually been willing to say anything to her the way that he taught her to do. There's this disconnect between the words and the deeds. And that really, at the core of this movie, is what it's really all about. It's how you express yourself to the people you love or the people you want to love. You let me defend you. And you knew you were guilty and you let me become a part of it. God, how can... All right, all right, go ahead. When I'm old, give me someone like me, but go ahead. Well, I trusted you. I stood up in court five years ago and I picked you. Why are you being so hateful to me? Is this because of Lloyd? No, I told you everything. You lied to me. I would have done anything for you. That's right, work it out. No, I will. I don't want to leave something out because I know I can say anything to you. You're a liar and a thief. Take it easy, how bad you make me? I'm the only dad you've got. Yeah, that relationship, that father-daughter relationship is so interesting. I want to get to that, but the line you just mentioned, for me, is one of those Cameron Crowe lines that when Dobler says, well, there was another letter that existed. That yeah, it's just it's knowing just that it existed. So, you know, it, it's such a beautiful thought. And you are right that it works because of those parallels of this idea of letters and also because the relationships have been built up and we know how much the father is broken up, that he's lost the trust of this daughter. All of that flows into that line. Mm -hmm. And it's why, for me at least, I know it's maybe not one of the more quoted, but it's one of my favorites of the film. And again, comparing that to Aloha, we have similar lines like that, that characters deliver, but none of that building work is behind that. No. So you, you could that's where you hear the faint echo. You're like, oh, that's a that is a great piece of dialogue. It needs a movie, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have the movie yet in Aloha. Now, the relationship between Ioni Sky and John Mahoney's characters, I mean, what other high school movie would really bother? Think about The Breakfast Club, which we recently did a Sacred Cow review, and we both liked quite a bit. In some but cases, we don't even see the parents. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like the Charlie Brown approach, right? And, and that's, that's a good one to take, because for a lot of high schoolers, that's how life is. For whatever reason, either the high schoolers just don't want the parents as part of their lives, or the parents are ignoring the high schoolers. They are separate worlds to a degree. So perfectly reasonable approach to take. But there's something so uniquely true also about this 
This is not probably your average father-daughter relationship. I'm not saying that. But it is one that will have so many echoes of truth because as much as some high schoolers and kids, and I, I was probably like this to agree too, want to be on our own and independent from our parents, I mean, we do have real relationships, hopefully, with our parents at that age. And this movie makes room for that and gives it extensive time, again, the generosity, and makes it feel true so that we are almost, almost as invested in how all of these turn of events are going to affect Diane's relationship with her father Mm -hmm. as what's going to happen with her and Lloyd. That's a very good point. And I like the fact that in both cases, we get some more symmetry with the pen. Going back to my whole idea of just how you choose to express yourself and the fact that she'd give him a pen. And it seems at the time so ridiculous that it would have any power whatsoever. But by the end of the film... It really does. And in terms of some of that dialogue and the clever ways that Cameron Coe uses it and how it ties into this larger idea of expression, how about that conversation? It's the opening scene of the movie where he's saying he wants to take Diane out on a second date. And they're like, you didn't have a date. And he says, yeah, I did. I mean, what's the definition of a date? He says, we shared an important physical event. So, again, what do words mean, obviously? And Corey says, that's not even a scam. And he says, what's a scam? And she says, going out as friends. And DC says, no, it's not scam is lusting. And it ends with Corey asking, then what is love? And that really is the question at the core of the movie. But what I love about it is it happens off screen. It isn't this heavy, dramatic, profound thing that Crow bothers to underline at all. He just lets the moment happen. It almost seems like maybe she didn't say it, but you do know she said it, and it hangs over the whole rest of the film. So what did you think about the ending? Because I had forgotten, actually, how it comes to a conclusion. I remembered that, we can spoil this, he does get on the plane with her, and I, it's an extended scene mm-hmm. with of them on the plane. Things are rocky. She doesn't like flying. And I was thinking, I don't remember how this ends. What's going to happen? I always remembered the ding. You remember the ding? Black. Yeah, I did. You like that? Yeah, I love it. The sort of the spin on the, it, you know, it's very much a graduate moment. Yeah. And though maybe a little not bit quite as hopeless as the graduate. Well, so that's what I was going to say. <laughs> or ambivalent. That's what I was going to say. Graduate. A little bit of me was thinking, oh, I like this as a, a little nod to the graduate. Obviously, these are, you know, they have a different experience than those characters. And maybe no matter how it would end, you'd feel a little more hopeful for these two. I, I don't know, perhaps. But I like the ambiguity of it. And then the ding came and I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. It, it does ding to give you this idea of, uh, okay, we're safe now. We're out of the we're turbulence. Clear. We're clear. Um, and it And I thought, well, is that a little too... No, you know what? That's what makes it a Cameron Crowe movie, is that ding. Because it comes back to this sense of optimism. No matter what situation you put him in, he's going to find... And it's an earned optimism. I think that's what made his really strong films stand out and stick with people and hit people where it matters. Because... Optimism, so many movies lather that on at the ending and hope you go out feeling that. But a lot of times we can kind of, you know, eh, okay, yeah, it's a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And I think Crow's best movies, which say anything obviously is one of them, sends you out feeling optimistic and that you earned it and the movie earned it. And that makes all the difference. Nobody thought we'd do this. Nobody really thinks it will work, do they? No. You just described every great success story. All right, sorry, sorry. 
One quick plug, I want to say it's my favorite review of Aloha, but it's also the only review of Aloha I read, so I don't know how good it is compared to all the others out there, but Alan Shurstel for The Village Voice mm-hmm. wrote a review. The title is Aloha is Terrible, but its biggest problem is shared by almost all Cameron Crowe films, and it talks about the idealism and the optimism a little bit of these heroes, these men, and how they kind of use these women to bounce that off of them, and it's a really compelling argument. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't read any reviews. And actually, I went into this pretty blind. I had a faint idea that it had not been received well, but I was away when it opened. So I had no idea it was, you know, this drastic of a revolt against the film. And, um, yeah, it was not fun to find Mm. out. That was true. We'll link to that Village Voice review in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Say Anything is 26 or so years older, and so are you. But we can all still learn a lot from Lloyd Dobler. It's available to stream on many platforms and at your local neighborhood video store. If you're lucky enough to have one of those, you might have better luck at your local library. Aloha is out now in wide release, but maybe not for long based on the response. If you see either movie and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Up next, a racy edition of Massacre Theater that involves a sex fantasy. And no, Adam, we're not doing a scene from your beloved Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) Not yet, anyways. Then we'll continue our look back at the Say Anything era with our top five films of 1989. Stay with us. I can live without so much. I can die without a clue. The sun keeps rising in the west. Keep on waiting for it comes to you One name that keeps coming up is this woman singer. She lives in an apartment building that is real close to your house. It's also close to the field where you found the year. It's a strange world, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know where this woman's apartment building is? A woman singer, an ear in a field. Yeah, gotta be blue velvet. Welcome back to Film Spotting. We wanted to take a moment to highlight an event for our Chicago land listeners coming up Saturday, June 13th. So next Saturday at the lovely wonderful Music Box Theater, a celebration of David Lynch, one of my favorite filmmakers. They're having a midnight screening of Blue Velvet, and they're transforming the Music Box Lounge with themed David Lynch artwork, baked goods, photo ops, and drink specials that will further bring the auteur's cinematic elements to life. (laughs) This is for real? It sounds peachy keen, Jellybean. Are they going to serve that uh, bloody pigeon? Because that's going to ruin the whole night from a racer head. You have to start cutting into that. 
<laughs> I want to see the lady in the radiator. That's all oh, I man. care about. This could go really wrong. This is the best part right here. I left out the real kicker. Guests will be able to interact with various performers dressed up as the characters from Blue Velvet and other Lynch productions. Well, there's the lady in the radiator. That's the lady in the radiator, and you will have nightmares for weeks after I, attending this. I think that's guaranteed. <laughs> so we'll link to more information about that if you are so inclined to have those nightmares in our show notes, filmspotting.net. Also at filmspotting.net, we're promoting my summer class. I'm going to be back teaching another class at the University of Chicago's Graham School. And after so much soul-searching, appropriately... Yeah, you settled on a topic? I did finally settle on a topic. not a to-be-determined class? Not to be determined. Well, we'll see how prepared I am by the time (laughs) it starts, which is June 24th. But there's still plenty of time to sign up if you are interested. And it is open to people of all ages and of all cinematic educations We're going to be focusing on crisis of faith movies. This is an idea I originally had, I bet you can guess, during one of our marathons about two years ago. What marathon might that have been, Josh? I'm going to guess Brisson. Yeah, it was Robert Brisson. And we're going to see at least one Brisson film in this class, along with films by Bergman, Tarkovsky, Dreyer. It won't all be that intense, though. We're going to see some more recent films as well. But Crisis of Faith and Josh, one of the reasons, maybe the reason I'm teaching this class is just to force you to finally see one of your blind spots. You are going to come help me co-teach the class. We're ending with Akira Kurosawa's Akiru. We're going to close it out. August 19th. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, force me. I mean, you act like I'm resisting it. It's just not one I've gotten around to. But this is a great... Excuse. Last summer for your class, it was a chance for me to see an Ozu film I had never seen. So I'm going to knock another one out here with this year's class. Next summer, I'll only teach Japanese films and you can co-teach the whole class with me. Excellent. Apparently, that's your forte. (laughs) I was afraid you were going to say next summer, I'm going to do a pitch perfect class just so I can force you to see those two films. Well, that's not a bad idea. You got your topic. (laughs) You're welcome. I don't know if I can stretch pitch perfect out to eight weeks, but I am willing to give it a try. So if you're interested in this class, if you're in the area... It's an evening class, one night a week for eight weeks. We'd love to have you. More information is available on our website right there in the top stories, filmspotting.net. Let's move on now to Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. This this tank, it, it, it isn't a... Isn't. 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 What? Come on, just one little adjective. We'll have a whole sentence here. The tank isn't glad. Sad, mad, lonely. It, it isn't op- op- operational. How do I know you're not lying? Because if, if I was lying, your lungs would be full of slime, I guess. Cool. So we get a new tank. That's Lori Petty as Tank Girl and Naomi Watts. Yes, Naomi Watts as Jet Girl in 1995's Tank Girl. It was written by Teddy Serafian and directed by Rachel Talale. If I had known I was playing Naomi Watts when I did that scene, I might have tried harder. Really? I think I let her down. You weren't trying to channel Naomi Watts? I was kind of phoning Tank Girl in. Boy, she's hardly recognizable in that scene, not vocally, but just visually even. A couple weeks back on episode 539, we did massacre that. We reviewed Mad Max Fury Road and revisited our top five car scenes. What does the long-forgotten Tank Girl have to do with Mad Max, you ask? Well, 
How about this plot description? After a comet disrupts the rain cycle of Earth, the planet has become a desolate, barren desert by the year 2033. With resources scarce, an evil corporation has taken control of the water supply. A pair of outlaws known as Tank Girl and Jet Girl rise up to destroy the corrupt system. So the question really is, what doesn't Tank Girl and Fury Road have in common? Well, there's even more from our listeners. David Killingsworth in Birmingham, Alabama writes, the parallels are a little obvious. Post-apocalyptic desert setting in Australia, loner with a haunted past is the lead, but where Max is a man of few words, Tank Girl never shuts up. They are both thrown together with a woman they haven't met before to try and escape captivity. This movie, by every criteria, is terrible. Acting, script, set design, makeup, they're all just bad. But the corny, childish one-liners are a guilty pleasure of mine. And I've seen it at least six times. Wow, that seems excessive, David. Mike Parker from San Ramon, California said, Once again, Adam has given a spot-on impression of Naomi Watts. There wow, you go. Maybe, maybe I delivered. It's not in the effort, apparently. This time he did it as Jet Girl in 1995's Tank Girl, a movie I'm sorry to say I've seen quite a few times, as it was one of those that was played on cable nonstop in my youth. The original comic book series by Alan Martin and Gorillaz co-creator Jamie Hewlett that this movie was based on is so irreverent, so schizophrenic, that there was no way Hollywood was going to do it justice. So it's no wonder that what we got instead was a cliche-filled, cheap Mad Max knockoff that was instantly forgotten. Still, it contains one of my all-time favorite movie lines. T-Saint is a character's mm-hmm. name, apparently, says, How much did water and power pay you to spy on us? Tank Girl, under the influence of truth serum, $2.15. David Killingsworth talking about the childish one-liners and a guilty pleasure. I guess they are for Mike as well. Mike continues, the obvious tie-in would be to your review of Pitch Perfect 2. Of course. A movie which features on its soundtrack Change Your Life by Iggy Azalea and T.I., whereas Tank Girl features performances by Iggy Pop and Ice-T. Mike was definitely the only listener to pick up on that. We were certainly going for it. Or maybe you were thinking of the movie's Mad Max derivative plot and aesthetic, water-deprived post-apocalyptic outback setting shaved headed strong female protagonist the young girl sam's abduction for a life of sexual slavery not unlike that of the wives or even the device malcolm mcdowell wielded which sucked all of the moisture out of its victims bodies similar to max's own fate as a blood bag in fury road i love our listeners and i love that many of them have seen tank girl multiple times that was evident in the entries not nearly as many as our previous massacre theater which was brad bird's the incredibles but still probably more than tank girl deserves then again we did do a scene that had the word tank in it we did we might not have had we were worried about yeah. no one getting this so we went a little obvious i guess obscure would have been okay yeah maybe so josh reach into the kind of brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner the winner is rich yates from denton texas congratulations rich email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt do we go right into the sex is that all right you don't need a rehearsal? No, it's okay. I can do it. Okay. Then we'll shoot the rehearsal. Okay. That brings us to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And Josh, what are you going to do when you just have to play real people and don't have funny voices to fall back on? I'm That's just, my challenge I, to you. I'm just going to nail it. That's all. <laughs> I love your confidence. I, I may be, you know, the gender switch might be a little difficult. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go for the, the faintly high-pitched, slightly British feminine voice you tend to rely on. I'll try to do something different. How dare you? But yes, we are going to mix it up. I'm going to take the male role this time. You're going to take the female role. We're not going to give you any other hints. Should be a fairly obvious scene. It ties in with 
a topic we're discussing on this week's show, and it is not Cameron Crowe, unless our listeners come up with some great connection, and I'm sure a few of them will. Josh, you're starting it off, so I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? I'm ready. And action. Well, basically, it's the same dream I've been having since I was 12. Which is? Okay, there's this guy. What does he look like? I don't know. He's just sort of faceless. Faceless guy. Okay. He rips off my clothes. And? That's it. That's it? Some faceless guy rips off all your clothes and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12? Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. And? And Scene. scene. (laughs) I think maybe you did nail it, Josh. Yeah? Yeah. Pretty good? I think you tapped into it, though it sounded really like you. Well. And not really that feminine at all. (laughs) What can I say? <laughs> if you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title, along with your name and location, to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 15th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Our current poll at filmspotting.net asks you for your favorite Cameron Crow hero. We gave you a bunch, but it's really down to the two favorites say anything's lloyd dobler and william miller from my beloved almost famous as of this taping orlando bloom has voted for his performance as drew baylor in elizabethtown let's see seven times come on shame on you That's orlando bloom not very nice <laughs> it's a little surprising to see miller maybe currently in the lead ahead of lloyd dobler but maybe that will change if people catch up with say anything inspired by our sacred cow review that will undoubtedly change i this has got to be a generational thing Yeah, maybe so. And that's funny because Sam, one of our beloved co-producers, did speculate earlier this week that maybe our audience doesn't really have much of a connection to Cameron Crowe. Yes, we have a sizable chunk of our audience that is kind of right in the age range as me and you. And we remember fondly movies like Say Anything and even Singles. But the younger demographic listening to Film Spotting, and there's a fair number of those out there, as you said during our review Say Anything, he hasn't been particularly good or compelling for... A solid decade it's or so. It's been a while. Yeah, since but, Almost Famous in 01. Right, which which this poll seems to express some familiarity with. But there's, I mean, I'm sorry. William Miller, great character. Patrick Fugit, I it's think, is, is very good in the role. But there's no comparison. We're saying shame on Orlando Bloom and shame on our <laughs> listeners who have voted for William Miller. One of my favorite characters, really in movies. He's the character I've used as my avatar in various platforms. And you're not even voting for, for a him. decade. And I'm not voting for him. So that should tell you something about Lloyd Dobler. We want to know what you think. Or really, we don't. We just want you to vote for Lloyd at filmspotting.net. So two weeks ago, we haven't really discussed this. We revisited our top five car scenes. And this week, we're revisiting the top five movies of 1989, tying in with Say Anything. It is another top five rerun. So what's going on? Well, it's summer. And I guess we are taking a little bit of a summer vacation here on the show, just in terms of some schedules recently and major conflicts and also a little bit of vacation. Josh, we haven't talked about it, but welcome back from Paris. Thank you. You look refreshed. You look like you had a great time. Don't let anyone tell you that that beret doesn't work. I think it it's really sharp. <laughs> yeah, I decided I'd try something different, go with the beret. And no, W and I are not responsible for them cut taking down all the locks. You know, have you seen this? No. Those locks that people put on the bridges to symbolize their love. That's been going on for a long time. And it's really hideous when you're there, too. It's, you know, these beautiful, gorgeous old bridges and these padlocks are all over them. Now the city is cutting those all off. 
and pulling them away. I think you it wasn't because of anything we did. Honestly, we resisted. We didn't do the lock thing. It was a great time. It felt like a month away. And yeah, we had to, um, you know, take a show off for that. But thanks to Matt and Allison mm-hmm. for filling in, doing a great job. And I guess you could see these top five revisits we plan to do. Instead of, you know, taking a month summer vacation, mm-hmm. we're just going to take like little mini vacations for each show. Yeah. Because it really does almost cut the workload in half. Uh, the amount of time we put into these top five lists, uh, which we love doing, but uh, it is one way to kind of lighten the load a little bit over the summer. And I think it'll be good. I think it'll work. People will survive. And what was it? Two summers ago, we actually went down to a show every, every other, other week. week. We're not so going to do that. We're determined. I think this is a better compromise. Yeah. There you go. We are trying to compromise, but still deliver some pretty good content every week on film spotting. So we appreciate everybody's patience with us this summer as we look to come back fully recharged with full shows in the fall. From the heart of Bed-Stuy, you're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! What better way to bring you back to the summer of 1989 than the voice of Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. This is our Do the Right Thing Memorial Top 5 list of films from 1989. So we're excluding it because I think we both agreed that it would very obviously be our number one choice. Clearly my number one. Yeah, yeah mine yep. as well. So rather and it's than, in the Pantheon. Yeah, it's in the Pantheon, but Pantheon doesn't matter when it comes to these year-by-year year year, That's true. Okay. No, so... Man, these rules. Pantheon, I know, the penalty box, because these are authoritative lists. <laughs> well, I mean, I know. This is important Heaven stuff Heaven forbid here. we break one of these rules ever. <laughs> that's right. So, the Pantheon is fair game, but do the right thing is not fair game. And I did want to acknowledge that we got many emails from listeners suggesting that the time would be ripe for a 25th yeah. anniversary look at Do the Right Thing, including this email we got. Josh, if you want to read it, I'm going to butcher the name. I sought their guidance in pronouncing it correctly. I'm going to go with Harry Sundarison. Dear Adam and Josh, I would love for you to do a show on Do the Right Thing. I saw this movie for the first time last week, and when I finally stopped singing Fight the Power by Public Enemy, I was able to appreciate all the great film suggestions film spotting has given me, from Brick to Grave of the Fireflies to Never Let Me Go and Now Do the Right Thing. It's been 25 years since the film came out. That's an anniversary, right? Anyway, I think now is a particularly relevant time to review it, in the sense that I think that film will always be particularly relevant. Okay, that's a cheat, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Do the Right Thing, how they've changed over the years and what the film means to you. Thanks always for your insights and film recommendations over the years. So thank you very much for that, Harry, and a great idea. We had already settled on Batman at the time those emails came in, but Do the Right Thing is one we've kicked around for a while. I'm not expecting to be surprised by Do the Right Thing. I don't remember the last time I saw it, but I know I'm going to love it again. I think that's probably our hesitation with it, which may not be the best reason. Uh, For me also, I know I won't be surprised. I have seen it recently. I spent a little time talking about it on episode 410 when we did, along with Michael Phillips, our sight and sound inspired list of the top 10 movies of all time. It was on my list. So it made your top 10. It, it wasn't the 11 actual 20? top 10. Okay. So spent a little time on it there. I mean, it's it's just, it's enraged. It's cathartic. It's empathetic. All these things. And you've got Lee working at the height of his considerable filmmaking powers. So yeah, it deserves a sacred cow for sure. Mm-hmm. But maybe 
doesn't quite fit all those requirements we've put on the category. We did go instead with the 25th anniversary of Batman earlier in the show, of course, but some of those Pantheon movies I think we will get to eventually. These year-by-year lists, though, is something Film Spotting started, I think, maybe five years ago, maybe even six years ago, just looking at movies that came out before the show started in 2005 and saying, okay, let's go back and explore the films from those years, 2004 on down. We're actually at 1992, but Sacred Cow picks like Batman sometimes inspire us to veer off course a little bit. We've done 1981 in conjunction with Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, and we probably will dance around like that from time to time, but we also expect to get back to the best films of 1992 here pretty soon on the show. So all of that said, Josh, top five films, 1989, What do you got? All right. Number five is The Killer from Hong Kong director John Woo, who gained global notoriety with his bullet ballets of the late 1980s and into the early 1990s. These were gangster movies such as A Better Tomorrow 1 and 2, Bullet in the Head, Hard Boiled, and this one, The Killer. Hollywood audiences probably know Woo from the likes of Face Off and Mission Impossible 2. Now, like many of his films from that 80s period, The Killer stars Chow Yun-Fat, this time as a mob hitman who accidentally wounds a karaoke singer while he's on a job. He damages her eyesight and then subsequently falls in love with her. He tries to help her set up some surgery, but that gets him caught between the mob and the police. I mentioned ballet because that's what the gunfights remind me of, and many of these involve those standoffs that would be liberally borrowed by Quentin Tarantino. But you could also describe the killer as an opera. That plot alone, you could get a sense of the grand story at play here. And there is agonized, emoting, often over-yearning karaoke music. The characters make these grand physical gestures even, and many of them are documented in slow motion. And you do have that tragic central relationship, this this idea of you have a blind woman who's unknowingly in love with the man who caused her blindness. Overwrought is probably an accurate word to describe the movie. 20 seconds in, we've got the candles and the doves, you know, uh, that Wu became known for. But those touches, everything in here, it's overwrought, but it's in such a committed way that I just found it irresistible. And I also think that this melodramatic technique, it does help. Um, it helps the movie accomplish one of its primary directives, which is to establish Chow's killer as this iconic, almost mythical character. Uh, listen to how an inspector at one point describes him to a police sketch artist. He says, in his 30s with some crow's feet, He has a manly air about him. He's a bit different from your average murderer. He's very calm, quite intelligent. His eyes are very alert, full of compassion, full of passion. And (laughs) the progression there I love because it goes from this clinical police report to a love letter. And in some ways, that's what the killer is. It's this love letter to the screen charisma of Chow Yun-Fat. So that's my number five. It's a great pick. It's a movie I'm a big fan of. It's an honorable mention for me. Le Samurai, of course, is a film that came up recently in our top five movie tattoos that we would get. And it's been discussed here on the show a few times. There's some overtones, certainly, in The Killer. And John Woo has been on record as being a huge fan of that film, wanting to remake it. So A lot of echoes there. Le Samurai, right. Good pick. I went back and looked at our website archive, and it turns out, Josh, that... Back in 2006, so sometime in that first year of the show, the first full year of the show, Sam and I did our best movies of the 1980s. And I looked at this after I'd already formed this list, and it turns out that three of these picks 
were on that list. From eighty, three of your movies yes. were from eighty nine. Three movies from nineteen eighty nine. It was a good year. That's how I good. I mean, it really was strong when we looked back at it. Yeah. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer, like we do from time to time with these lists, in order to engender more diverse idiosyncratic choices, we had set aside five obvious 80s movies, five obvious classics as untouchable, like Raging Bull, for example. Mm. So obviously, if we were truly doing the top five of the 80s, the list might be a little bit different. But nevertheless, I was looking at that entire decade and I still focused in on three of these films. So maybe that speaks to me just being too short-sighted and focused on these particular films. But I do think it speaks to how good of a year, as you said, 1989 is. And my number five, I really wrestled with this and you're going to get me wrestling with it here on air because... When it comes down to it, I think it's the perfect number five choice in terms of an introduction to a list like this where we're going back and we're considering what are the movies I would have loved in 1989 versus the movies I love now looking back at 1989. And is there a conflict there or are you somehow still in sync? And this one comes down to that head versus the heart battle. My current self versus my former self. Is nostalgia going to win out? My head tells me that the number five film of 1989 is Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Okay. My heart tells me that the number five film of 1989 is Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. Oh, wow. And Josh, the heart is going to win out. As well, it should. I'm going with Say Anything. And this is all I have to say because I truly just waited until the very last minute to make a choice here. If it comes down to living in a world where I can pop in my DVD and spend some time with Graham and Anne from Sex, Lies, and Videotape, their names I had to look up, or Lloyd Dobler and Diane Court. I'm going with Lloyd and Diane. Simple as that. You know what? what? You're a great date. I've never really gone out with someone as basic as you. Basic? Hmm. So what's your job this summer? Job? Being a great date. No, I'm serious. So am I. I want to see you again. I want to see you as much as I can before you leave. I said it. I only have something like 16 weeks. 16 weeks is a long time. And call me tomorrow. Today's tomorrow. Then call me later. Okay. I love it. I loved it when I saw it then. I love it every time I pick it up on TV since. It's a movie that I believe has continued to age well. And that character, the Lloyd Dobler character, is just an iconic cinematic character for me. I think that's a valid choice. If I had been able to revisit it, it might have cracked my top five. I have seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape recently, and it certainly holds up. Honorable mention as well. Both are for me. But yeah, I would have gone that way as well. All right. So number four then? Indeed. Okay. For me, it is Batman. Spent a lot of time on it in our Sacred Cow review. So I'll just mention a couple things uh, that we didn't get to. You did touch on the German expressionism in the production design. Anton First was the production designer here doing brilliant work. And I think that is a real strength of this film. Metropolis is an obvious influence, the Fritz Lang film, especially in that scene in the art museum. It's also the scene of the unfortunate dancing by Nicholson. But if you look at the design of that museum, it's almost like the underground factory in Metropolis with giant doors and these industrialized touches. The statues in this movie are just amazing. Uh, They call to mind the uh, the Atlas statue at Rockefeller Center, but that's sort of like a triumphant one. And here you have these hooded figures who are stooped and the globes on their backs. It's like, it's just the globes are crushing the figures into the ground. So it emphasizes the grimness of this city that you talked about. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's like art deco gone to seed, beautiful, beautiful production design. And I want to tie in also to the imagery 
that Burton does overall. It's not a very well-directed action film in the action scenes. There are a lot of close-ups that are trying to mask, I think, some staging that isn't quite working. Well, let me just throw in there. Did you notice how when they were staging the big finale scene with all the people of Gotham Uh out for this thing, maybe it was intentional to suggest that not many people came out for the money, but it looks like they had about 40 extras. <laughs> ran, That's it. They ran out of extra yeah. money. It's like in a the giant smallest mob of people trying to yeah. get $20 million you've ever seen. Yeah, I think those big action set pieces are a little lacking. But what Burton's really good at, it, and maybe you could argue is more important for a comic book property, is the iconic imagery that he gets. Yeah. A- and there's the Batman stuff, which I think is good, but there's also... His favorite character in this movie, the Joker, that shot of the Joker's hand coming up out of the toxic so waste where it's just chalky white. The fingernails uh, are bright green and it's it's this uh, deeply disturbing, uh, sinister day glow. Uh, the bright colors here are drawn from maybe some of the early comics, but also used in a sinister way. So yeah. I love that imagery. Um, what else about the film can I say? One thing we didn't get to that I think is really funny, just a throwaway moment. Uh, you mentioned Jack Palance as Carl Grissom, the crime yeah. boss. The first scene between him and Nicholson, before Nicholson is turned into Joker, I love how... I talk about how Nicholson is doing big Nicholson already. Palance is doing Nicholson. It's like he's in, in Nicholson's face giving a Nicholson impersonation. And not only is that fun, but then as the Joker towards the end of the film, he calls back that exact speech that Grissom gives him and just right. ratchets it up a degree. So that's where that sort of self-parody that Nicholson is playing with uh, just works so wonderfully for the movie. Carl, uh, we get somebody else to do this fumes in that place. Jack. It's an important job. I need someone I can trust. (laughs) You are my number one guy. Now, don't forget your lucky deck. You know, thinking back on it, I didn't notice any palance imitation of Nicholson. I mean, Palance is another big actor with a really distinct voice, but absolutely the scene where Nicholson is giving a mission to his henchmen, just like Grissom did to him, he does say it in this very definitive Jack Palance (laughs) voice. And I actually rewound it just to prove that my ears were correct in hearing that, that he was going back and hearkening back to Jack Palance there. So you're right, good stuff. And I'm with you on the imagery. That's something we didn't get into completely. But right from the very beginning of the film, the black and blue background that seems so clearly painted, the night sky looks like something out of a comic book, the yellow lettering against it. These images, you talked about the hand coming up out of the waist. That's a great image, not because... It's something that seems like it was taken right out of a comic book, but Mm -hmm. it's great for the same reason someone would draw it in a comic book. That image alone is evocative. There's something powerful. It is great storytelling. And there's another great one, too, of course, very famous, that the moment Burton takes and the little break Bruce Wayne takes as Batman, when during that big finale action set piece, he goes up into the night sky and has to just hang there the bat wing, making the bat man emblem against the moon right just taking that moment to give us that iconic shot that's the kind of stuff that makes burton's batman really work although maybe that's also what threw the batwings aim off when it came down too quickly from the goofing around if he just (laughs) stuck to it he would have hit him 
Yeah, would have gone much smoother. Well, my number four is a film I loved as well in 1989, but having revisited it recently, I can say that it's not just nostalgia. I liked it even more recently than I did back in 1989, and it's Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I actually wrote on Twitter after seeing this film, because we were preparing for our top five Spielberg scenes, I'm not saying that Last Crusade is better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not sure that I would put it up there that high because I do love Raiders, but Harrison Ford's performance in The Last Crusade is better, more well-rounded, deeper it's overall. It's very different. It's very different. He yeah. gets a lot more to do, and there's more heavy lifting, if you will, along with the same great action stuff and everything you'd expect from Harrison Ford. That's all there, but I do think it's a deeper performance. The jokes are better overall in The Last Crusade. I think the humor is actually more effective. And the ending is way better. The ending with the knight guarding the grail and you chose wisely. You love the holy wisely. grail oh, scene, huh? Everything about that is so much better than the kind of kooky ending we get in Raiders Lost Ark, though I do love that final shot involving the Ark from Raiders. Those aspects are all better. And then, of course, there is the key thing that really holds that whole film together is that father and son storyline and Sean Connery's performance and Harrison Ford's performance, their chemistry together as father and son, which you expect, of course, from Spielberg. So many of his movies have these characters who are searching for father figures, but it just combines. And I said this during our top five Spielberg scenes, because I think the three challenges sequence, the the penitent man shall pass was my number two. That's how much I love that scene and love this film overall. There's that great intercutting between Connery and Harrison Ford as he's on this mission, them almost talking to each other. We see them having this dialogue with each other. Penitent man will pass. Penitent man. Only the penitent man pass. Only the penitent man pass. Penitent man will pass. Penitent, penitent. Penitent man. Penitent man. Penitent man is humble before God. They're just some of those great moments in the film where they discover things about each other as father and son, the things as a father he's never said to him before. And then we get that emotional moment where Connery thinks Harrison Ford has gone over the cliff and he's dead. And there's genuine emotion there in that loss. And the scene that happens at the end of the penitent man shall pass sequence where Harrison Ford, Indy is reaching for that grail and Connery tells him, just let it go let it go. It's this whole notion of obsession. They're both obsessive characters to a fault, right? Their relationship has been strained because of Connery's devotion to finding this object. And in that moment, it comes to choosing between that object or his son. And he very clearly says, son, let it go. It's such a great cathartic moment. You get that throughout this film, in addition to all the great action and adventure. Is it Spielberg's richest father-son relationship? I mean, that's one be. thing that's notable about his films, right? That that the father figure can be, if not actually absent, mm-hmm. a little bit uh, distant from right. the children. And here, it's it's like the exact opposite. And I, I think it really adds to the film. You're right. The, the chemistry there is fantastic. I, I think The Last Crusade is also a good example of, um, <laughs> to use a, a very unartistic phrase, but 
franchise extension done well. It, watching it again, you can see how much J.J. Abrams, he's learned a lot from Spielberg, but he's also learned how to revisit properties and re-energize them while still staying true to what they were. Because after Temple of Doom, I mean, that thing was off the rails, right? Yeah. Pretty much. I know it has its defenders, but yeah. the franchise was off the rails. And so what Spielberg did, especially that opening scene with River Phoenix as a young Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. is reestablish everything that was good about the original and then took it a little bit further. And, and I think Abrams has been doing similar things with uh, with the Star Trek films and, and hopefully with Star Wars. All right, we'll finish our list of the top five movies of 1989 when we come back. I predict my heart will go on for James Cameron while Adam's going to find another way to get some more Shakespeare into the show. Stay with us. 
many of the problems that are going on there. But but what happens before is uh, is so thrilling emotionally and viscerally that uh, I'm not really taken out of the film by that ending. The, the main plot involves an oil rig crew who's commandeered by a Navy SEAL team to help recover this sunken submarine. Ed Harris is the oil crew foreman, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is his estranged wife. She also designed this advanced underwater oil drilling station where much of the movie takes place. I noticed that a friend of the show, Peter Labuza, recently rewatched The Abyss on Letterboxd. I saw his notes there, um, and he said the film's strength comes in the details of slowness. No one can move quickly in water, so everything sort of glides awkwardly, and each crash and bump is felt. It's also a film deeply invested in creating a legible architecture, especially for a space surrounded in almost pitch black. Cameron's opening sequences in the cavernous oil rig slowly connect the dots of A to B and use the numerous windows to point out the relationship of the outside area to each inside. That's very true. I mean, this is marvelous use of space here uh, to set up the action. Uh, but there's one reason this is really on my list, okay. and it doesn't have much to do with that. It's that this has the best rising water suspense sequence oh, of yeah. all time but I isn't think. that the end of the film it's not the end of the film no the the end it, the end it gets very close encounters if you right. remember, I remember the that. rising and the end of the film involves the scene we just played of harris going deeper down mm-hmm. to explore um but this sequence of harris and master antonio trapped in the the submarine where the water is oh, rising yeah. it, it might even be in the middle of the film and man is it you know We've seen these sequences over and over, time and time again, but how many times have we seen them between two characters who have such a richly drawn relationship and a conflicted one at the same time? The key is when they're trapped in the submersible and they find out they've only got the one oxygen suit. Okay. We got to get you out of here. How? I don't know how. We've only got one suit. I know, I know, but we've got to come oh up Oh, my with God, I'm breathing. <laughs> You're smart. Think of something. Can't you think okay. of something? Think of something. Okay, why don't you swing back to the rig and bring back another suit? You won't take me that Saturday. Eight minutes to swim. Get the gear. Come back. I wouldn't make it. Look at this. By the time I got back, you'd be... It isn't until they make that realization that simultaneously you recognize they are also realizing they're still in love. Yeah. And, and the the way that comes together, uh, it's just perfect. Uh, it's an intensely romantic scene. So never mind Titanic, the abyss. That's James Cameron's love story. And, <laughs> and for that, it's it's my number three film of 89. Well, I do like the abyss quite a bit. I remember seeing it not in theaters, but on HBO mm-hmm. and stuff the ensuing year. And I know that there always has been some discussion. I don't know if controversy is the right word or not about the ending of the film. All I know is the version I saw on HBO, I liked a lot. So I don't know what the problem yeah, with the ending it's, is. It's not, uh, I think it's just that it doesn't live up to, okay, here's what it is for me. It gets bigger than the people. Um, and somehow something like Close Encounters, I think, which has a similar huge scale ending, um, it's connected to Dreyfus's Roy as well. Mm-hmm. And here uh, the spectacular is a little further removed from Harrison and Mastro Antonio, who okay. are the heart of the film. Well, a movie I need to revisit. My number three follows nicely on the heels of my number four pick, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, as we were talking about father and son relationships. Certainly this film is about that. And as a born and bred Iowan, I think I'm 
obligated to pick it if I'm looking back at the films of 1989. It is Field of Dreams. And I do want to note for the record that my days of romanticizing the sport of baseball are long gone. Maybe, in fact, the last time I romanticized the sport of baseball was when I saw Field of Dreams in 1989. It's been a long time since I really cared about the sport. But this movie grabs me every single time it's on. And of course, it is on TBS or TNT or something once or twice a year. And there's some Saturday or Sunday where I'm flipping channels trying to be distracted from whatever it is I should be doing. And I do get caught up in it. Of course, as an American male who grew up playing catch with his dad and who did feel often at odds with his dad, yes, it gets a little dusty at the end of the film when Costner asks his father if he wants to have a catch. But Josh, it's not that scene so much, and it's not really even those emotional moments. There are many other scenes that just grab me every time. It is these smaller moments. For example, when James Earl Jones says, Moonlight Graham, after they've gone to the game, and he's just dropped him off at his place, and he's going to stay in Boston, and Costner's going to go off to Minnesota chasing what he saw on the scoreboard, and Costner just explodes. You saw it! That validation that he's not crazy, that someone else saw what he saw, and you get that excitement with Costner contrasted with James Earl Jones' skepticism. When Timothy Busfield, near the end of the film, is ranting about selling the farm, and Costner says, hey, this is Terrence Mann, and they do this little introduction, and he says, yeah, right, and I'm the Easter Bunny. The laugh that James Earl Jones gives us is just priceless. Like, he's just having a ball in this moment and recognizing what that character must think when he hears that this famous writer is sitting there. That James Earl Jones performance... Every time I think about it, I go online and have to verify that he didn't get an Oscar nomination. I'm shocked he did not get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor because he is just so brilliant in the movie. But the real scene, Josh, that I literally still get tingles from every time I see it is the scene where they've just left Burt Lancaster and Moonlight Graham gone back into the past somehow, this supernatural evening that Costner has when he goes out and ends up back in 1972. They're heading back to Iowa. James Little Jones has decided to come with them. They feel like they've missed something. They don't really understand why they were supposed to go there. And they see a hitchhiker, a young man hitchhiking. And Costner says, I'm going to stop and pick him up. I need all the good karma I can. Thanks. You're the first car by. How far are you going? How far are you going? Iowa. Well, if it's okay with you, I think I'll just ride along a while. I play baseball. Hop in. Looking for a place to play. I heard that all through the Midwest, they have towns with teams. And in some places, well, they'll even find you a day job so you can play ball nights and weekends. Well, this is your lucky day, kid. We're going someplace kind of like that. All right. I'm Ray Kinsella. This is Terrence Mann. Hi. I'm Archie Graham. Costner and Jones, they just pause for a second, stunned. It's this moment where the stars align, the supernatural quest has all come together, and you mix that with Frank Whaley's youthful optimism, that sense of hope in his voice. You've got three generations of American men there in that car, all with distinctly different viewpoints on America and Americans. And there's just something so much more profound, I think, going on in Field of Dreams, other than being just a great sports movie. It also, Josh, features some of the best uses of that classic kind of John Wayne, John Ford stagecoach tracking in on a character dramatically for emphasis. You get a lot of those shots. The director really uses them well, where you see a character like Burt Lancaster or James Earl Jones going out into the cornfield and the camera just tracks slightly for effect. Very good stuff. 
at the risk of having my U.S. citizenship revoked, can I confess that I've not seen Field of Dreams? What? That's not even possible. It's true. That's not even possible. It is true. Yes. See, see, I think a lot of these blind spots are if you grew up in a house without cable, actually, where, where these things aren't playing on a loop. That could be it. It could also yeah. be that I despised Little League. I mean, do you think do you think as someone who did not ever have a romantic attachment to baseball, the movie would still work? Without a doubt. All right. For all the reasons I I'll just said. I'll give it a try. I'll it's give it a try. Ultimately it's ultimately a father and son story. resisted. It's just, right. uh, uh, even when I look at the list of films from 89 I haven't seen, it, yeah. you know, I put others ahead of it oh, to catch much up Much more with, than so. about baseball. It's really about, right. it's really about family and it really is about what identifies us as Americans. There's a great scene that when you think back on it, you're like, that's in Field of Dreams where Costner and his wife, Amy Madigan, go to this town hall type meeting at their school where some of the people in the town want to ban certain books from being read and she has to stand up for it and it really does stand out but it fits perfectly with all the other themes of the film all right i'll give it a try my number two it's one you predicted you were right the little mermaid i knew it would be on your list <laughs> well, of course it's great and it's animated and well, it's think disney ab- think about it though this i mean it's it's such a key disney film because the mini renaissance it began here and, and carried a couple films into the 1990s but this was the start of it the adaptation of the hans christian anderson fairy tale it's also returned to, to disney's princess roots it had strayed away from that a little bit in the films prior to this and, and here you've got the mermaid ariel who must overcome this conniving witch figure to gain her freedom and independence now the witch uh, ursula voiced by pat carroll envisioned as this husky nightclub chanteuse with tentacles got a lot of time on the show tasha robinson of the dissolve and i did tied to maleficent we listed our top five disney villains tasha had ursula as number one i think she was my number two or three uh the little mermaid though was also a return to form for disney in the sense of it being a musical which they had also gotten a little bit away from and so here you have this journey of ariel that's outlined as much through song as it is through action and composer was alan menken lyricist howard ashman they really indulged in a wide array of styles here with under the sea part of this world and kiss the girl you've got some that are bouncy some are operatic um, and everyone though does work for the story that's being told the animation itself, I think, was um, a little bit of a step forward, too, for Disney at the time. They retained this uh, penchant for anthropomorphized figures so the animals move and behave like humans. But it's really the service of some rich characterization here. So you have Sebastian the Crab or Flounder, Ariel's companion, and, of course, Ursula, too. And the underwater imagery, it's quite astonishing. I mean, it, it has this delicate, watery shimmer um, before we got uh, used to it, maybe, through CGI, it's here in traditional animation, so that the droplets, they, they do look like they're going to fall right off the screen. So Little Mermaid, 1989, it was the first sign that things were getting back on track in a really good way for Disney. I like The Little Mermaid a lot, and I do want to note for the record, no one can steal this Husky Nightclub Chanteuse is the name of my next band. So <laughs> you like that one? As long as we have that down. But I'm going to start selling these to you. For you the, should. The, the one you choose for your band is going to be big bucks. <laughs> but in 89... I had a nine-year-old sister, a five-year-old sister, and a new baby sister. Oh, no. So talk about being on a loop. The Little Mermaid literally was on a loop. Yeah. All day long, home with them. We watched Yikes. The Little Mermaid. And you know what? It never really got old. I always liked it. Okay, good. So good. it's a good I pick. was going to say you might have some clockwork orange associations <laughs> with The Little Mermaid then. No, nowhere near my top 10 for the year, but <laughs> a good film. Maybe okay. in the top 15. There Josh. you go. Well, my number two. Gosh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Oh, for a muse of fire. That would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, 
assumed the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. I could go on. Can I, I could go on all and on. of that for my band name? Ah, man, I didn't even get to the vasty fields of France, or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Now you're getting a little long for the drum kit. I am. That is, of course. From the opening to Henry V, Derek Jacobi, the chorus in Kenneth Branagh's rendition of the William Shakespeare play, Henry V. And this goes back to our recent discussion of my own private Idaho, of course, how much I love this whole storyline and these characters that are part of this world, Henry IV parts one and two, and Henry V. But one of the many aspects of Branagh's Henry V I love, and I know this will shock you, because I never really talk about how much I love meta moments or movies that call attention to the filmmaking, but I love the meta nature of this, where at the beginning of the play, Branagh doesn't just choose to forego the chorus, which he doesn't need and which doesn't even make any sense, because it ends with the character saying, you know, take in our play and try to use your imagination. But he uses it instead. He beseeches the audience to recognize the limitations of these sets and these locations and how hard it's going to be to try to bring such an epic tale to life on the screen. It sets the tone for the whole film right from that very beginning. And I could go through a litany of amazing speeches and scenes. Once more onto the breach, St. Crispin's Day. Henry, when he goes incognito among his men to kind of suss out how they're feeling the night before the big battle. But one that has always stood out to me as well is his proposal to Catherine, the chemistry between Branagh and Emma Thompson, who were husband and wife at the time, and the humor of it as he has to use his broken French to try to get her to understand why they should be married. I will tell thee in French, which I'm sure will hang about my tongue like a new married wife about her husband's neck, hardly to be shook off. Je con sur le position de France et quand vous avez le position de moi, let me see, donc votre est France et vous êtes mienne. It is as easy for me, Kate, to conquer the kingdom as to speak so much more French. I will never move thee in French unless it be to laugh at me. He really, Branagh, that is, humanizes this Henry V character in a way that, like, if you go back and watch the 45 Lawrence Olivier version, he just tries to make him this majestic, regal figure that was there almost as propaganda to energize the British people. It might have been 45 or earlier in the war, but there's definitely something very jingoistic about Olivier's Henry V. And you don't get that nearly as much in Branagh's version, where we even see him flash back to Henry IV and show this character having no mercy on his former pubmates, the Falstaff-type characters. And it just makes him a much more difficult character to like, even though it's very clear that he's supposed to be our hero. It's just one of those movies that is so formative for me. I didn't see it in 1989. I saw it a few years later when I was a senior in high school. When I started studying in this one class, plays like Henry V and poetry and getting into some great literature, and it just had a huge influence on why I wanted to read books and poetry and see plays and movies and analyze and argue about them, really getting into that Henry V character and trying to figure out what made him tick and whether or not he was someone likable or not or how Shakespeare was depicting him, how we were supposed to interpret him. That really did launch me on what we're sitting here doing right now. There were two films from 89 I knew were going to be on your list. Uh, Henry V was one. I'm yeah. pretty sure I know your number one is okay. them. 
My number one, however, is the Decalogue. And this is from Polish director Krzysztof Kislowski. It's a 10-part series of short films. They're each set in the same Warsaw apartment complex and each thematically ties to one of the Ten Commandments. This series, it made its debut on Polish television in 1989, but it took a few years for outside audiences to become aware of it. Eventually, though, as more and more people saw it and more critics were writing about it, it became recognized really as one of the major cinematic achievements of the past 20 or 30 years, even making an appearance on Roger Ebert's sight and sound list of the best films of all time. He put it on there when he did the list in 2002. There aren't always obvious correlations between uh, the installment and a certain commandment. This is something Ebert noted as well. But that's sort of what I liked about this collection. Uh, Kislovsky's first concern is really the everyday moral dilemmas that people face. And then he allows room for the mosaic laws that might apply to, to kind of send echoes into the story. Ebert put it this way. At the end, you see that the commandments work not like science, but like art. They are instructions for how to paint a worthy portrait with our lives. I think the Decalogue is a little bit like Ida in this way, the Polish film about a young nun in training that we both named as one of the best of the year so far. It has both the Decalogue and Ida, they have this ability to make transcendent concerns deeply personal uh, and root them in individual stories. So the Decalogue, it's my number one. It was long unavailable, but you can now get DVD sets, including one from Chicago's Facets. The Decalogue. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you seen all 10 installments? I have seen all 10, but I, I've i really only written and dug into the first one. Mm-hmm. I would love to do all of them, a deep look at all of them, because they really do deserve it. Yeah, back a few years ago here on the show, Maddie and I did a Kijlovsky marathon, and we watched a short film about love and a short okay. film about killing. For some reason, it sticks in my mind, maybe number two and number seven in the series. I could be completely wrong, but we saw those two and reviewed them both very favorably, had good discussions about them. But those are the only two I've seen. So for me, the Decalogue can't really count. You're right. You know what's coming surely here with my number one, Josh. It is Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, my favorite film of 1989. And I've always said this about this film. I love it because for me, it's the perfect Woody Allen combination of comedy and drama. There are hilarious moments in this film, all usually involving Woody's character and Mia Farrow's character and Alan Alda, who Woody has been hired to make a documentary about. He's this very famous television producer and Woody's character kind of despises everything he stands for. And you get their great exchanges and all the stuff about tragedy plus time. And if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it isn't funny. And you get quips from Woody like the last time I was inside a woman was when I visited the Statue of Liberty. So there are those moments of comedy, but then mixed with what you get from the main storyline of Martin Landau's Judah, who's an ophthalmologist who's having an affair with Angelica Houston. She wants to be with him and threatens to take down his marriage if they can't be together. And like Henry V, I have to say, maybe sadly, I was reflecting on this, Josh, as I was thinking about my number one pick. This is another formative movie for me in the sense that it affected my worldview in general. It's the film that made me realize that art often shows us idealized versions of ourselves. People who do really bad things in movies or books, other types of art, are often so racked with guilt that they ultimately confess, or they're punished for their crimes eventually, or at the last minute, goodness prevails, morality prevails, and they don't do the horrible deed they were considering. Crimes has the conviction to show us that that isn't necessarily how the world works. In fact, that isn't 
how it works most often. And you get that great line at the end of the film from Martin Landau's character where he says, in reality, we rationalize, we deny, or we couldn't go on living. It's cynical, absolutely. It's harsh, but it's 100% accurate. And I think it's as true as any sentiment cinema's ever given us. I think it's that reflective of the human experience. And I also love about Crimes and Misdemeanors that it's a perfect 1989 movie for this list. You talk about movies that define a decade or a kind of an epitaph for a decade. This decade defined by excess and greed and the rich, people like Judah prospering while the poor, people like Dolores, who's a flight attendant who is kind of wowed by his sophistication and his wealth she's taken advantage of. She's exploited. The rich are getting richer at the expense of people like her, and she is ultimately completely expendable. And there's kind of a throwaway moment, actually, in one of their exchanges that I love. It's always been one of the keys to the movie for me, where she brings up the fact that at one point he borrowed money from the hospital or something. I don't remember the exact specifics, but she brings up to use against him that she's aware that he did some funneling of funds. And I think he even explains well, I gave it all back, I returned it, and with interest and all this stuff. But that's what he does. Again, he rationalizes. He found a way to justify something that was maybe not morally wrong, but certainly ethically wrong, and he got away with it because people like Judah think they can and ultimately can get away with it. The only issue I've ever had with Crimes and Misdemeanors actually is in Angelica Houston's performance. It's a little bit unhinged to the point where, yes, I understand that she's supposed to be very upset and very forceful in trying to get what she wants, but she actually makes her so hysterical at times that you're kind of rooting for Judah to get rid of her, just to get her out of the picture because she's annoying. And I'd like to empathize with that character a little bit more. But for me, it's up there in my favorite Woody Allen films of all time. It's up there in my favorite films of all time. And I know we split on this movie. Yeah, you know, we've we've largely been able to talk around our general Woody Allen split since I've been on the show. There haven't been many instances, and we found a, a really strong common ground in Manhattan, which I absolutely loved yeah. when I watched uh, for the first time recently. But this is one that just epitomizes for me what gets me stuck on a lot of Woody Allen. And and it's, you know, there's something we can we could argue in circles around and it doesn't matter. I don't find him generally as funny. So when you talk about the humor being a key to this, um, it, it's one of the reasons why I think Matchpoint is the superior version of this is because there's no Woody Allen on screen. Uh, but another reason is that this has the um, the desperate wanting to be taken seriously that that just exudes from some of Alan's pictures. And it comes through when you get the literalness of the themes. Okay. Without so the, a doubt. So the symbolism and the, the of the eyes the and God is watching. Yeah. The philosophical pontificating, all of that stuff I I just find for me works better when it's going on under the surface as he as he does in match point. So um I know I'm alone on that one, but th- this is one of those I just can't uh, can't get on board with. No, I after doing the show with you for a few years now, could have predicted that response, frankly, just because there is a certain literalness and heavy handedness to the symbolism that I can see bugging you. For me, though, it's not a problem because it's precisely the type of symbolism that the filmmaker gets away with because he introduces it right from the beginning of the film. He says right at the very beginning, he gives us this character who expresses to the crowd that Maybe why I went into ophthalmology is because I was haunted by this notion that the eyes of God are always watching us. So for me, all the other symbolism and mentions of that we get throughout the film are just fulfilling the promise of Callbacks. the opening scene of the yeah, film. And, yeah. and it all works for me. I don't mind the literalness of it there. The other thing that we could disagree about, but I think in those moments where characters express those sentiments that seem to be them just underlining the 
themes of the film or the big philosophical questions, I believe in every moment that those characters are saying it. It doesn't feel like many other movies do. Like the filmmaker is just putting those words in the characters' mouths. I believe that Judah would say exactly that in that moment. Except that Judah is such a flip side of Alan. So, I don't think so. So it's, uh, oh, even in his mannerisms, I feel like he's he's doing the serious Alan. Alan's getting to the shticky Alan, and yeah. they're both talking like Alan, mm. thematically. So. Yeah, I, I don't feel that about his performance, actually. I see it as much more restrained than that. So we split on that film, but Crimes and Misdemeanors is my number one, and those are our top five films of 1989. Just for kicks, Josh, did you contemplate what would have been your top five of 89 when you were in 1989? I didn't do that, but I I did. I don't think it would have been, you know, I hadn't seen the Kishlovsky, so Decalogue I had no awareness of. Little Mermaid probably would have been on there. I know The Abyss and Batman would have been. Um, Let's see. And so The Killer saw recently, so that would not have been. I did do my top ten of 89, and it's actually filled out, uh, so these would be the honorable mentions, uh, with a couple of your films. So I had on there uh, Say Anything, um, and also Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, and then Sex, Lies, and Videotape I would put on there as well. Dead Calm uh, is the Australian film with Nicole Kidman that was on my top five movie boats list yeah, I don't recently. see your attraction to that movie at all. D- you've seen it? I have. Really? Yeah, but just what, what holds late you at night when it? it was on TV, when I was much younger. Didn't, didn't no, grab you? I haven't really considered it to be totally honest with you but yeah, it's worth it a didn't revisit. jump out to me it's at all it's worth a revisit especially for kidman's performance and and understanding what's so good about her that maybe has gotten lost uh, and then the other to round out my top 10 would have been kiki's delivery service good miyazaki probably not one of my favorite miyazakis okay well the 14 year old me i would have had these movies in my top five just like now indiana jones and the last crusade say anything and feel the dreams feel the dreams would have been my number one in 1989 my number two in 1989 would have been Dead Poet Society. Yes, that needs a revisit. And Major League definitely would have made <laughs> the top five. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball, bats are afraid. I asked Joe Boo to come. Take fear from bats. I offer him cigar and rum. He will come. You know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. Jesus, I like him very much. He no help with curveball. Yes, Major League, a much beloved film here on Film Spotting, at least by one current host and a couple former hosts. I don't know about you, Josh. Let's just say I loved it in 1989. Haven't seen it since. Well, I haven't really either, but I saw it so many times then, and I did say it was among my top five of 1989 in 1989. We heard Dennis Haysbert as Pedro Serrano with Chelsea Ross as aging pitcher Eddie Harris in that clip. Before we go, we did this with our top five car scenes a few weeks ago as well. Let's get to some feedback, some responses to our top five films of 89 lists and see what we got right and what we got wrong. Josh Ashen Miller from Los Angeles says, I wouldn't change a thing about your list. Okay, maybe I would change two things. Adam, go with your first instinct and put Major League in there instead of Field of Dreams. Never. Although Field of Dreams was probably a better film, Major League screams 1989. The other change I would make is The Little Mermaid. I agree with everything the feminists say about this film, though over time my anti-Disney antipathy has softened. My seven-year-old daughter now knows all the songs, and I have to admit they are pretty memorable. My quarrel is with the animation. 
The underwater scenes are aggravating. Every time a character swims away, there's a trail of bubbles. Where exactly is the air coming from? <laughs> this is the terrestrial equivalent of stars passing by outside the window of TV's Starship Enterprise as a way of simulating travel throughout outer space. Disney Pixar made amends for the impossible air bubbles when they created spectacular undersea visuals in 2003's Finding Nemo. The only bubbles were in the dentist office aquarium. <laughs> Come on. The, you know what? That sounds like, to me, Josh, did he say, yeah, he's watching this with his seven-year-old daughter. I have a feeling this thing's been on repeat and he's yeah. starting to notice these things that really... You don't don't nitpick. Has to come a up with something mermaid. to distract himself exactly. a little bit and focusing a little too much. Maybe Josh, I believe, too, is someone who is either in or trying to be in the film industry. He's not a scientist. I don't think he's really a chemist. <laughs> he's not a water bubble a scientist. And yet you might think he is based on that email. Now, one of the reasons I did want to squeeze in some of this feedback is just for this email right here, because we've actually read it before. Once during bonus content, we shared some of the responses to the top five films of 89 and it deserves a larger audience it really does deserve a larger audience <laughs> especially because we didn't get to hear your funny voices in massacre theater this week oh 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 we're gonna get him here i'm putting you on the spot josh i think you nailed it during bonus content we'll see if you can pull it back out rob cosgrove in ann arbor michigan writes as for josh having never seen field of dreams i'm starting to think that there might be something bigger amiss here i picture a scene similar to the tv show <laughs> the americans where the embedded russian spy meets with his handler speaking in russian josh you're going to start the scene i'll play the handler okay. and action so we may have a problem in the next podcast i'll have to admit i haven't seen field of dreams people will get suspicious just tell them you hated little league and never had cable i'll give it a try and scene <laughs> you see what i did there i went with my standard vaguely kind of british well, feminine even though you were a woman handler there you go <laughs> who can't speak with a Russian accent at all. Josh, Rob writes, I didn't have cable and I wasn't a huge fan of Little League. But Field of Dreams and Vision Quest were crucial markers for young boys and adolescents nevertheless. How could you have missed both of these? Adam, I'm asking that you ask Josh to pledge his allegiance to the United States before episode 500. Or at the very least run a thorough background check. I don't mind that he's a Russian spy. But we're talking Field of Dreams here. I think he's on to you, Josh. It says so much about you. It's true. I immigrated to this country in 1990. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much for that email. We also got this one from Carlos Martinez Perez. He's a Spaniard. But he's based in Edinburgh, Scotland. At least he was when he sent us this email. I thoroughly enjoyed the top five. And among other things, it reminded me of how much I like crimes and misdemeanors when I first saw it a few years ago. Easily one of my favorite Alan films. Your mention of Sex, Lies, and Videotape also led me to see it for the first time. I thought the movie was far from perfect, but definitely interesting and well worth watching. If for nothing else, just for probably being the only existing piece of evidence that Andy McDowell can act beyond the lovable romantic interest role I was mainly familiar with from most of her rom-com filmography. All right. I'm glad we turned someone on to Soderbergh there. John D. Cesaro in Wichita, Kansas. That's straight out of Wichita, Kansas. John says, today, movies like Do the Right Thing and Crimes and Misdemeanors are obvious choices. I valued both of your lists, but felt there was one film that did not get even an honorable mention that deserves a little love. Parenthood. Ron Howard's funny and poignant peek into the lives of the Buckman family manages to balance a heavy cast of strong performances and explore the dynamics between children and their parents in an honest way that holds up today. For sure, the game of catch and field of dreams gets me dusty every time, but for my money, some of the best father-son drama on display that year can be found in Parenthood. 
Well, in my KGB training, they did not show me Vision Quest. They did not show me Field of Dreams, but they showed me Parenthood, and I liked it. Yeah? Yeah. I was a big fan of Parenthood in 1989. Well, I've seen Field of Dreams, and I've seen Vision Quest a hundred times each, but haven't seen Parenthood. I, I think I we need a it. 1989 screening night. <laughs> Parenthood, Vision Quest, Field of Dreams. Oh, it sounds, sounds magical. Close us out with Francis in Bethesda, Maryland. So as for this week, particularly in the 4th of July week, how did glory not even merit an honorable mention? Matthew Broderick gives a merely serviceable performance, but Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, Carrie Elwes, John Finn, and even an uncredited Jane Alexander give such rich performances that a rich portrait of the Civil War's daily reality is presented in a way that has never been equaled. So I did go back and look at my top five list and my notes, and I had in there that Glory was my one big regret, even more so than Parenthood. Glory is the one film from 89, or at least one of the major films, let's say major American Hollywood films, I can't believe I still haven't seen. Yeah, I loved Glory in 89. Haven't seen it since. Should have been an honorable mention. Well, those are our top five films of 1989 revisited. You've already sent us some email. We just featured some. You can do it again. Send us your picks or any other comments about this show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam at Larson on Film is me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives, including that original airing of the top five of 89, along with a Sacred Cow review of Tim Burton's Batman. And if you go to the top fives tab, you can find all our year-by-year countdown lists. Just click on annual top films. And our website also allows you to take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. William Miller from Almost Famous and Say Anything's Lloyd Dobler basically in a death match. They're duking it out for the mantle of favorite Cameron Crowe hero. Opening in limited release this weekend, Aloft with Jennifer Connelly and Love and Mercy. This is the Brian Wilson biopic of sorts with Paul Dano and there he is, John Cusack. They're playing Wilson, young and old. At the Gene Siskel Film Center, Blind, the debut film from the co-writer of Oslo, August 31, one of my favorite movies from a few years ago. And Hard to Be a God, critically praised, famously confounding film from Russia. Josh, do you want to enlighten us on the plot? All right, we have here a group of scientists is sent to the planet Arkanar to help the local civilization, which is in the medieval phase of its own history, to find the right path to progress. And from what I've read about this film... It's nowhere near as clear as that. <laughs> Fair enough. That's at the Siskel and at the Music Box, The Nightmare, a movie I've been wanting to see. I believe it played at Sundance from the director of Room 237, a documentary about people with sleep paralysis and nightmares. It's also available via video on demand. In wide release, Entourage. Yes, the big screen adaptation of the HBO series. Insidious, Chapter 3, and Spy, the third collaboration between director Paul Feig and star Melissa McCarthy. They previously collaborated on Bridesmaids and The Heat. This looks like a good wide-release gun-to-your-head question for you, because I have an easy answer. Which one of these three I'd go see, but which one, if you had to choose one? Adam Kempenire. <laughs> Don't make me do would this. Would you go see? <laughs> well, it's not Insidious because I don't like scary movies. Right. And Entourage looks a little bit terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what you were talking about. I don't know. About. Do I lose all credibility, any credibility, if I say I'd rather see Entourage than Spy? I think that's the honest answer. I kind of would. I kind of do. <laughs> Although I got to say, I laughed more during the Spy trailer than I did all throughout Aloha. Yeah, I think I probably did as well. Spy does star Jude Law and the great Jason Statham. So I don't know. That's a tough choice. Next week on the show, 
we're not sure what we're doing yet. Our first choice is Love and Mercy. We really want to talk about this film. So far, I think getting some good buzz. Cusack, as we said, Paul Dano, Brian Wilson, a fascinating musical figure, a musical genius. Jurassic World, though, is also opening next weekend. We do have an opportunity, potentially, to see that film in advance and review it on the show. So we're trying to decide which one we're going to get to. I guess you will just have to tune in to see. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Okay, and uh, Sam. Okay, I'll explain this in the email. Even though this is pointless. I'm going to do it anyway just for kicks. You should enjoy this. Just tell them you hated Little League and never had cable. <laughs>